<laughs> yeah, I um for context, there was a there were a few nights where I literally like filled up my bathtub, loaded it with Epsom salt, lied down parallel to the ground and just like envisioned running and just wept for like hours. Welcome back to On the Villain. So today we're going to talk with my friend Aaron, who was trying to be an actor last time I literally spoke to you and then was doing the whole thing in L.A. And then when we reconnected recently, like was you were telling me about like all of the stuff that happened. You had a knee injury. And so I would just love to hear your story and any sort of like things that you learned from that experience. And if you have any sort of like you know, you said you've been talking about this with your therapist. So like, you know, any of the <laughs> juicy, juicy life, you know, philosophy lessons, we would love to hear it. So can you just give the audience a quick intro, anything you think they should know about you just off the bat? Yes, absolutely. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited, really nervous. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, for context, I moved out to L.A. a month after graduating from college. I was raised with a father who lived with a lot of regrets, and he kind of, uh, in an unhealthy way, I think, took that out on his kids. So it was always my mm -hmm. mission um, to go at life, assuring myself that if and when I chose to have kids, I could tell them I lived without a regret everything i wanted to try i did um mm -hmm. so that was the impulse to move out to la i had a five-year plan um and accomplished almost everything uh that i had set out for myself so i went out there spent the first two years working shit jobs like i think most people do um <laughs> yeah. big worked, la energy yeah oh dude huge la energy there um so i, I worked in law briefly um and then i worked in post-production doing a lot of boring behind the scenes stuff um and then i got my first big break which was a little uh spot on this tv show it's a nickelodeon show called henry danger um, so I got that and that led to, um, a lead role in a SAG feature film. And then I got cast after that in, um, a TV series that was written and directed by the man who did barbershop. If you guys are familiar. Um, yeah. so I was cast in that as like a gym. Uh, if you guys are familiar with the office, uh, that was my role there. We shot the whole first season of that. Um, and then the pandemic came and, um, I was, I suffered a really, really gruesome injury. Um, and I kind of just went through like this hell spiral. <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, yeah, I can go into more detail about that. You guys let me know what you want to hear about that. But yeah, I basically was at the peak of what I think my life was. And I think the most enviable age, like 26, I was like peaking in every measurable way. And then soon thereafter, everything went downhill really really fast yes yeah. life has a way of just ripping shit out from under you it does it does <laughs> <laughs> um and i've been um one of my like i call it one of my superpowers um i've gone through some really tough shit in my life and i've always been able to like spin the narrative to make those traumas into positives that kind of keep pushing mm -hmm. me forward i think if people can do that you kind of like um you fortify yourself against trauma and kind of become resilient um mm -hmm. But I had never dealt with a health issue like the thing that happened with my knee. And I can go into further detail. So um, I was like a three sport athlete my entire life. Um, like sports was the way that I, I didn't know this before the injury, but sports was the way I kind of framed everything in my life. It was how yeah. I got my dopamine. It was how I stayed fit. It was everything revolved around it, um, even as, as an adult. Um, and yeah, I was just carrying a cooler down a hill um and my knee blew out um Jesus. yeah it was surreal um now this was in may of 2020 right in the heart of the pandemic and because mm -hmm. technically a meniscus tear is an elective surgery i couldn't get surgery until february of 2021 so i spent roughly eight months fully bedridden um and I, I don't say that like as an exaggeration. I literally couldn't get up to walk. Like I couldn't walk. Um, I had a partner at the time who was so gracious and so patient and really like 
if I didn't have her in my life, I don't, I don't know if I'd be here, frankly. Um, cause it's one thing to be incapacitated. It's another thing to be incapacitated 3000 miles from your entire family. Yeah. Um, as the world feels like it's ending. <laughs> and this was, and this um, was, you were still in LA when this was happening. Yes. Yes. Um, and so, yeah, I went through all of that and then finally got the green light for the surgery in February of 2021. And the day or the, really like the day I got out of surgery, um, I knew something was wrong. Um, my, my leg had like ballooned up. I don't know if anyone's familiar with having a meniscus surgery, but it's not, it's, it's minimally invasive and it's pretty simple. Um, now I was unfamiliar with this. No one in my family has ever had it done. Um, so I was just trusting what the doctor was telling me, which was, you know, give it some time, give it some time. Um, I trusted that for about nine months. And, uh, at the nine month mark, I kind of said to myself like, okay, something's wrong. I should probably consult someone else. <laughs> um, so I, I, I did just that. I went to find another surgeon and, uh, he informed me that there was some sort of mass growing inside my knee. Uh, and so we went in for a second surgery in March of 2022. He did some work in there three months later, turns out he didn't do enough. So we went back in again in August. Yeah, no, July. Um, so I've had three surgeries in a year and a half. Um, and uh, it has kind of like turned my life upside down because I still to this day can't walk pain free. Uh, I struggle sleeping. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, go again. Okay, go ahead. Here's the thing I really don't understand. If you couldn't walk, how could this possibly be an elective surgery? Okay, so that Wait, was that's a fantastic question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's I, I wish I had the answer for you. And this is kind of like my life's journey for the past two years is I think I had maybe met one of the, I'm sure, fractional number of medical professionals that is not like entirely honest or something, or there was a misunderstanding, I don't know. But for effectively a year to have been either given bad advice or lied to by someone who like literally takes an oath to protect you, um, at, at couple that with what was happening in the world, right? We were seeing people who were getting very tribal and very um, uh, possessive in a really disheartening way, right? You see people rushing to stores to get like toilet paper, buying all the food. Yeah. Um, so everything in my life sort of came together. Uh, Isabel, you know me. Uh, I'm a relentlessly optimistic guy, sometimes to the point of like naivete. And there was no way to maintain that during this time period. And I'm still kind of rebuilding it. I used to be an optimist. Mm -hmm. Now I'm like a pragmatist that like borders on pessimist. But I'm really, I'm really <laughs> trying to build myself back up. Um, but yeah, to answer that question, I don't know. I don't know how it was deemed elective. What I do think yeah. is because of COVID, I think they were really trying to only maintain surgical centers for people who were like very, very desperately um, suffering. I think I was that I pleaded my case many times, um, but, but that, but they didn't say, Oh, normally this wouldn't be elective, but because of the situation, like now we're considering all like non totally essential surgeries elective or whatever. No, that, that was, that was the context in which it was given. They had said like, Oh, they did. Like, say yeah. That. Yeah. This, this was a thing. I don't know if this was particular to California cause they have, they've had pretty strict uh, COVID rules. Um, yeah. but yeah, that was the justification for it. It wasn't like she was okay. just saying like, no, I don't think so. Um, yeah. okay. 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 But yeah. yeah so I, I don't know if it was like a, you know, if her hands were tied, uh, no clue. Um, but the most disheartening thing was to, to bear out that nine months constantly being told, you know, come back in a month. It'll be, you know, it'll get there. It just needs to like hit that inflection point where it starts to heal. Um, and we never got there. Um, and you know, when we finally, uh, managed to have the surgery, it was a nightmare. I was like vomiting afterwards. I was like cold shivers. I don't know if I had blood poisoning. Um, but God, I should have had my my ex on. She she could testify to how pitiful this entire scenario was. Um, but yeah, I uh, I thought I was gonna die during that point. Um, and the weirdest thing is, I can only talk about this stuff 
one person saw me go through it and even seeing someone go through it, you can't like possibly empathize with what's happening internally. Um, so it all sounds like fanciful, um, or at least like exaggeration, but it is not at all that. Like I thought I was going to die for the better part of like nine months. And then once I got the surgery, I thought I was going to die again for several months after that until I finally (laughs) found someone who could help me. So um, right now what I'm doing is I'm trying to like recontextualize things and do what I've done with things that have happened in my in my past. Again, I've had traumas. Mm -hmm. I've never had bodily ones, but the ones that have happened externally, I've been able to allow them to think, uh, allow them to empower me to think about the world in a way that is a little bit more optimistic so i'm that's where i am now is trying to give context to what the hell just happened to me um yeah in in any in any measure of ways yeah yeah it all feels so chaotic it's like you know for that to be happening in this like intense period of medical upheaval where like where like you know it feels like the world is ending thousands of people are dying every day from this disease and you know like it's I, I got like, you know, I caught a cold like two or three months ago and I was like, it's not fair that <laughs> other medical emergencies are still happening while this pandemic was going on. Yeah, um, no, that's yeah. absolutely that's absolutely true. And that was one of the weird things I and this is a huge thing that I've been working through with my therapist is I went through a brutal, th- a brutal thing at a time where everything else seemed worse. So the entire yeah. time I was telling myself I was minimizing what I was going through. Because I never useful. No, no. (laughs) Uh, You know, it was always like it was always like, okay, I might be living day to day, like ready to cry or crying, but at least I haven't lost a loved one. And like that's while that's true, like that isn't a way to justify a lived experience ever. Um, So that's that's the current thing I'm working through is like allowing myself to grieve old me and the thing I've been through and not be disempowered by any measure of things that I once was able to do that I'm no longer able to do. Yeah. Yeah. I've always felt like such, so much of my, um, mood is dependent on my like ability to like move and participate in movement. And like, even when I get, you know, minorly sick, like the, the forced kind of the, like being forced to not do something like, or not be active or not like go climbing or whatever, like always has, really really tangible like effects on my mental health so i really i really couldn't imagine being kind of like as out of commission as you you have had to be in the last couple of years yeah coming from from someone like you who clearly like you know used to do a lot of shit (laughs) yeah i um for context there was a there were a few nights where i literally like filled up my bathtub loaded it with epsom salt lied down parallel to the ground and just like envisioned running and just wept for like hours um Mm -hmm. yeah again sounds fanciful but that was what was going on i mean that's Uh, that's, that was your reality yeah yeah Yeah. it's no joke now what i what i will say though is like one of the one of the things that i have found um the way i'm twisting it into the positive is um i now can empathize with a whole demographic of people that i never could have so yeah. I, I have a total ambition to at least get to know folks who have struggled with things like chronic pain or invisible illnesses, whatever you want to um, consider them. Um, so I'm already in a bunch of Facebook groups where we we talk through these things. And I personally, I believe I'm beyond the point. Like, I don't cry all the time anymore. The pain has been solved somewhat through various surgeries. I can't run anymore, but at least the pain is gone. Um, so that, that that's one positive, right? Is like I now can empathize with people who struggle in ways you can't possibly imagine until you've like gone through it. Um, so that's, I guess that's one, one blessing or positive. Although you had done like stuff with the disability community before this whole thing happened with you, right? Like you had already been doing some, had an involvement in that space before. Yeah, totally. That was a little, little bit different, but yeah, no, I've, I've done a ton of volunteer work. Yeah. So I, I got started working with this uh, nonprofit called PALS programs and they work with individuals with down syndrome and autism dual diagnoses. Um, That was just something I did because I, uh, had a cousin who had a neurological disability that manifested most closely to Down syndrome. 
So while I was at mm-hmm. Swarthmore, it's the college I attended, um, I found out about this program and I started doing it. And there's literally nothing in my life that I love more uh, than this program. If anyone's listening and wants to check that out, it's called PALS Programs. Um, it's yeah, it's incredible. We do week long overnight camps for young adults with Down syndrome, and it's a way for them to, you know, escape their confines, you know, oddly enough, um, and get to have experiences that they might not otherwise get. Right. It's sort of simulating um, college. Right. So we'll stay at different universities, campuses during the summer. Um, we'll, you know, design a bunch of activities. Idea being they get to work on independence, um, self-sufficiency and Ideally, they get to build a uh, like a social network through which they can continue, um, you know, consulting far beyond camp. Um, I have so many friends that I never would have uh, never would have met who have Down syndrome. I I just talked to um, my friend Scotty Lesmus earlier this morning. Down syndrome. Um, we're just, there's there's no difference. We're just homies. Like he he makes me happier than most people I know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Totally. So, DeAndre, I know this was not the point of this episode, but I feel like when in talking to, you know, other people about like what kinds of episodes they want to see on our show, one of the a recommendations I've heard multiple times has been like, I think since you so Aaron, for the context, we're pretty like anti-romanticism, I would say. Oh no. And people have said, Hey, I think that you should do a case like the case for monogamy or the case for romanticism or whatever. And inadvertently, I almost feel like stories like this kind of provides that case a little bit do you know what i'm saying no can you explain more (laughs) i think it's like in those situations because i actually know another person from swat who had a very similar situation to aaron like it sounds like having a partner makes a huge difference in those situations where you have like complete you're totally out of commission you're like literally 100 relying on someone like if you didn't have you know, your ex at the time helping you through, like, what would you have done? Uh, probably killed yep. myself. Seriously. Like, the, like that's the, 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 the I have an, another um, friend who is on the board of the National Home Funeral Alliance with me who had a similar, not actually like similar in, in the sense that she got injured, but she like hit a deer recently. And she was just describing to us how shocking that was and how she was like super traumatized by it. She was she's an officiant of a funeral. So she was like going to do a funeral and like was coming back to sort of like pay her respects to the deer. And then they were there was someone chopping the head of the deer off. And like that was also super traumatizing for her. And so she was just describing like, you know, her car got totaled and then her partner had to come pick her up. And she was just like, I cannot imagine like if I didn't have like my spouse, like what what I could have even done in that moment. Like, obviously, we have friends who can probably like we can rely on and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. But like in that moment, just like a, like the emotional release and just like, you know, having somebody who, you know, will be there, like literally no matter what, like that, I do think is, uh, I think a pretty strong point in favor of romanticism in that respect. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I guess I didn't view our, um, I didn't view our show as a romantic, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like, I feel like, I mean, I feel like, um, yeah, I don't know. I, 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 I'm trying to think about like a working definition of romanticism, you know, because like, I think there's like this kind of like colloquial idea of romance, which it seems a little separate from like what we're talking about, which is, you know, like choosing to live life with somebody. Yeah, I think that like when we talk about it, like a lot of the things that we're sort of like railing against is like the notion that there's like, you know, it's this oppressive thing where it's like you have to like have a partner and people like, you know, feel like, you know, driven to a point of desperation that like makes them feel literally like uncomfortable when they don't have a partner. But like, I do think this is just like a really good case for like, yeah, I mean, look, you know, dating someone's sick. Yeah. (laughs) yeah totally you know like like like, like dating someone or like having you know having a long-term partner is sick you know that's like yeah that's i feel like that's not up for debate it's like for me it's like you know it's great like and i think necessary for you to be able to live on your own right and like Mm -hmm. you know be comfortable with yourself and like all these things um but like you know i'm not gonna lie and say that 
dating someone isn't sick. Like, <laughs> so like, like if I, if I'm choosing one or the other, if I'm choosing singleness or choosing or choosing non-singleness, I'm, I'm choosing non-singleness every time, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, um, I, t- to speak to that. Yeah. Um, yeah, and that, that's, yeah, I'm really curious, like your like, like your relationship in that time, because I feel like for a lot of people, it's super difficult to be caregiven for. Oh my right. God, 110%. Um, yeah. And you must have a, a crazy degree of empathy to even th- ask that question. That's a crazy insight because I couldn't, I couldn't even like conceptualize the idea that anyone could imagine me in that context. So yes. Now, now what's weird though, is like, you can't really hedge against that. Like you only know that that is such an incredible, invaluable aspect of a relationship. If God forbid you're in that scenario. Right. So like you can talk about it and it seems like hoity toity, but when you're in it, like, no, there is nothing better than having a constant love and affection that is Mm -hmm. for lack of a better term, like, uh, I have no better term. Um, yeah, but like. Yeah. So for me, and I, I don't know if this is like a stereotypically gendered mindset. I really don't, but I, I would still be, I'm just going to use her name cause she'd be comfortable with it. I would still be dating Adriana if I didn't, if the three surgeries I had to pay for didn't bankrupt me to the point where I had to leave California. Like this is how undying yeah. our like love has been, or at least the love from her direction is that she was with me through everything and was going to be with me indefinitely. Um, and this is something that I still, this is one part that I haven't figured out with my therapist yet. Um, I, (laughs) I think, so she met me and we started dating at like what I described earlier as like the pinnacle of, you know, up until this point, what I would call my height. Right. I'm Mm -hmm. on, I'm on a Nickelodeon show. I'm leading a movie. I just shot a whole season leading a, tv tv show um and then literally three four months later i am unable to walk um so i felt almost like she had been sold a bill of goods that was just not at all what what ended up being the case um and still to this day i haven't been able to like justify or even comprehend how i was lovable at that time um I wish I could be like more eloquent about it, but she yeah. was, and, and the most difficult thing was watching her sort of go through the rigors of being unable to be pleased by me in any manner of ways. Right. I'm talking like fiscally, I couldn't treat her to anything because I was being bankrupt by surgery after surgery after surgery. So that's one. So you think about traditional dating roles, like the fiscal stuff. Emotionally, I was so embroiled in pain, like the phrase seeing red, I had never understood until I suffered this injury. I couldn't talk about anything else. I couldn't, like I, sometimes I couldn't keep down food. I slept next to never. And I was just like abusing any kind of painkiller I could find to get through it. So emotionally, I could not be there for that's something I've gone through with therapy and I've started to forgive myself for. And then even sexually, I physically couldn't do it. Like I was in too much pain. So at that point, when you can't like provide for someone emotionally, fiscally, sexually, I think justifiably so you start asking yourself, like, what are you loving about me? Right. Like what's happening here? Yeah. Um, and I, so, and I, this like breaks my heart and you might, we joked in the pre-show that I might cry and it would be awkward. I might. <laughs> We're, I'm, I'm edging right now. Yeah. <laughs> Tear edging. Oh man. Um, no, but um, yeah, I, I couldn't comprehend what was lovable about me. If anything, in fact, I only viewed myself as like a, a virus to everyone around me. And really that was only two people. That was my, my partner and my mother who I would, call on the phone sometimes um and it was just i was living a life of guilt everyone i spoke to i talked about my pain um i i just associated with pain that's all i was and i don't mean just i myself was in pain i mean i was pain to other people um and 
I don't know if that speaks to like a particular bond that Adriana and I had and I think still have, or if it's something that, you know, just that's really what love is about or romance. But I will say, yeah, if I didn't have her for that excruciating and still like incomprehensible time in my life, I would not be here. Like that is full fact. Mm-hmm. Full stop. Yeah. Yeah, I've um I've been on the kind of the other side of like a care I've been in a caregiving role. I haven't had to be like kind of I haven't, you know, I've been fortunate enough to not need to be like in need of a caregiver for the 24 or for any like long extended period of time. And yeah, I mean, I know like it can it, it just like really it can really stress the relationship, but I don't know like how do you, how do you feel how do you feel it it impacted your relationship in that, like, in kind of in that realm of like, you know, obviously you were having a really hard time with like, you know, having, you had a very negative opinion of yourself. Do you feel like you were like able to receive like love from her? Or do you feel like, yeah, like kind of speak to that, like the stress that it put on the relationship a little bit? Yeah, for sure. Um, no, to answer you. Um, yeah. in fact, and it's so unfair. And she and I have discussed this um, in depth since. Um, and we've we've done our forgiving and stuff. But no, I so much hated myself that I started to resent people that loved me. Um, yeah. Because I thought there must be something wrong with them. Um, and I'm sure this is not something that is unique to people in physical pain. I'm sure there are people who are stuck in depressive ruts who feel this all the time um this kind of pain is so alienating because it turns you against yourself and the hate is so like all-consuming that you it almost creates an orbit around you that further alienates you because anyone who approaches you you think no there's something wrong with you because i am such a miserable wreck um and i i i think that's something to be spoken about like in a broader context uh maybe within communities that suffer from this stuff um but i I don't know the solution there because having been there it it like i couldn't have done things without her but it was almost maddening that she was there if that makes sense because it, it felt like you know i was a virus to the world like i couldn't do anything i was only using up resources I had literally no sense of purpose because I couldn't work. I couldn't, I couldn't delude myself into convincing yeah. myself you of felt, anything. Yeah. You felt like a burden to her. And the fact that like, you know, like she, you know, her being there is kind of like you need her, but it's also reminding you that you need her and that you also, are, that you feel like you're a burden. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and that's obviously so unfair. <laughs> um, yeah. I don't know if, if other people would have experienced that differently, right? It might be, maybe that's a particularly stereotypical male way of thinking about love, right? Because again, stereotypically, mm-hmm. you're thought like, I should be the earner, I should be the provider. And I think sexually, that would be the case with I, any gender. Um, but, you know, uh, emotionally, I'm a really emotional dude. Like, it is crazy that I, there was a point where I couldn't be emotionally available to anyone because, like I said, I, like, on the drop of a hat, I could weep in front of you. Um, but yeah, I, I don't, I don't know. I want to, like, get a group of maybe men who have been through really, um, holistically disempowering issues and just talk on that. Why can't mm-hmm. we accept unconditional love? Because I think everyone aspires to that. And then ironically, when I had it, I only wanted to push it away. Yeah. Mm -hmm. My read is that, like, I think that there's certainly a gender element to it. But, like, generally speaking, across the board, it's just really difficult for people to receive care because we live in a society where our worth is literally just equated with your economic output. Right. We don't see ourselves as having worth outside of being able to, like, you know, provide something or, quote unquote, like, you know, be able to participate in those sort of like if we're going to, like, look at it in these sort of cold terms, like these economic transactions, it's like we're not we want reciprocity right from our relationships across the board. 
And this, I mean, I work in death care, so this happens to so many people at the end of life, like almost across the board. Everyone feels that way when they're like, oh, I am frail. Like, I literally cannot reciprocate the care that you're giving me. And like sometimes if it's like, for example, like your kid taking care of you, you sort of are like, oh, well, I took care of this kid. And then, you know, sometimes you have a relationship where you're like that sort of justifies it. It is actually reciprocal or whatever. But often, especially if it's not your kid who's taking care of you, you don't feel like there's it, it like there's something about it not feeling reciprocal that makes people deeply unsettled. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, and you're right. It's really difficult to figure out how do we like start seeing people in our society as being valuable inherently because there are going to be so many people, literally all of the most vulnerable populations in our society. Right. Yeah. There are going to be people who will never be able to reciprocate the full amount of care that they need. And that should be fine. Mm. <clears throat> right. Yeah. And I think it's I mean, I think this is like, you know, this is echoing like Aaron's and, you know, obviously many people's I mean, this is a situation that people go through. Like it really is echoing a lot of the worst parts about the way our, our society functions. Right. Like, mm -hmm. obviously, you know, while this was happening to Aaron, you know, the pandemic was stressing our healthcare system. But, you know, like the pandemic, you know, the pandemic exasperated issues that were already there right like <laughs> there you know our, our healthcare system is wrought with tons of issues many of that it seems like you had to face head on right like the fact that like we you know we have to, we have doctors that you know have differing medical opinions and some of them make the wrong calls and when they do make the wrong calls it's really hard to find a different doctor it's hard to find insurance it's hard to justify to your insurance that you need to find a different doctor. Often it's hard to get the medical care that you need. It's often very hard to get the support that you need after you have a procedure. And all of this is happening and like literally bankrupting Aaron, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> literally, like, yes. like whilst yeah. all this is going on, you're, you also have to figure out a way to pay for all of this shit. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and then like access to pain medication, you know, it's like, it's all, and access to rehabilitation services like all these are all ish, like glaring issues that we have in our medical care system that like it feels like Aaron you had to go through this like perfect storm of like just being this terrible victim of like all the deficiencies of our of our society yeah sounds about right <laughs> you know? um, yeah yeah well so coincidentally though I, I so I, I live my life in five-year plans I have it built out for like 15 years actually and all at the end of each five year it it it's constituted by a, a reflective period. And I ask myself, am I happy? If I'm not, I pivot to the next five-year plan. If I am, I continue going. And, you know, ideally one of these is in perpetuity, but, but if not, I just go to the next five-year plan. Um, and so this latest five-year plan, I plan to enter into like public office. I don't think front-facing, but I do want to work in policy. And of course, I will bring a lot of what I've experienced into this idea of how do you fix a really really sometimes you think maybe like intentionally built to be mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> not function so well um so th again that's i'm trying to find positives in this crazy uh two-year period that i've that i've gone through um and then in terms of the romanticism i will say um when i injured my knee the only job i could find that i could physically do because i needed insurance because i'd, I'd actually been let go from my job because of covid so i didn't have a job when i got injured which just added to the stress um, was being a, like a house manager for um, individuals with disabilities. Uh, I, I, I do believe, and I always have that the universe like looks out for you. I don't ascribe to like any theological framework, but I do believe in that like karmic stuff. Um, Cause it helps me survive. <laughs> um, yeah. And there, there is something to this idea that like I lost all corporeal, function i literally would like hobble into work ready to die sit tr do my best to take care of the folks i was with go home and cry myself to sleep but in them accepting me i got to meet this man named ben who is like the most inspiring man i've ever met and he's like part tragic part comic in the sense that 
When he was 12, he had this bike accident and he developed short-term memory from a brain hemorrhage. He, and then he lost one of his feet because he had had some sort of reaction to whatever was used to treat a very small wound in his leg. Um, and it ended up like poisoning, because like, he has crazy varicose veins and stuff from it. Um, but he had a bad reaction, so they had to lop off his foot. Um, and he's now 54. And I'm living, not li- living, felt like living, um, working in this home with him. And um, he was one of my residents. And his outlook on life was insane. Everything I could possibly say that was even like tinted negative. This man had a retort that was like, good God, this is how you're supposed to look at life. Because you, my friend, have been handed like the biggest shit hand imaginable. Like, I thought it was bad at 26. Imagine 12. You don't even get to live through like any of your glory years at that point. Um, And this guy was just relentlessly optimistic. And the, the tragic comic part is that like the short term memory, I think, helps him exist. And that's another one of those things where, like, I think the universe kind of takes care of people. I don't know if it's, like, sketchy to say that that's a benefit, but I think for this man it really is. Because he he doesn't get marred down in negativity, ever. Because his short-term memory just kind of, like, resets him every 20, 30 minutes. And his, like, default setting is relentless optimism. So like he is like a he's like a hack for the universe. If we could just bring him to anyone in need and just talk to him for 30 minutes, even an hour and get the same story twice. Um, mm-hmm. He's just uh, that was one of those things where, again, karmically, I think I was given this man um, that really like held my hand through the worst time in my life mm-hmm. physically. Um, so I don't know. Maybe there are people who empathize with like uh with that idea i don't know if you guys have read the hero with a thousand faces um okay so joseph campbell is this uh man who went around to a bunch of different countries studied cultures um learned about their folklore myths and developed what's called the monomyth um a lot of traditional entertainment is written following this structure it's why a lot of movies you see follow almost the same thing like heroes young has everything loses stuff comes back and then like returns with like something um, yeah. So he developed the monomyth by combining factors that he found present in folklore all around the world. Um, and part of it is like along the way, you meet these people who give you either talismans, and those can be physical, or those can be like, you know, gifts of varying the way you think. Yeah. Um, and I think it's beautiful that, that there are stories all around the world of these people existing that have made it into folklore because it speaks to like this idea that maybe we wouldn't know otherwise that there is a pattern of people showing up to help you. And if you can like think about them as maybe they were designed to be there, um, it makes it a lot easier to be present with them and to like see them for who they are. Um, I don't know. And, and get all you can out of them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. one, how is the process of, like, rediscovering some kind of joy or positivity or whatever going for you? And two, I mean, like, what, if there, if progress has been made, it seems like progress has been made, um, how, 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 have you, how have you done it? Like, has it been a change in thinking? Have you started doing things differently? Like, what is, you know, what is, what does that process look like for you? It, it's a lot like grief. Um, acceptance was a huge thing for me. Um, for two Uh years, I wanted to resist it. Right. Um, and I, I can't. So accepting where I'm at allows me to then see what I have and gravitate towards it with all my might, because that's the stuff that fulfills me or makes me feel loved. Um, Mm -hmm. so for me, what that looks like. And God, am I in a privileged place to move into this little house in Scranton, Pennsylvania, because that isn't available to a a ton of people. Um, But yeah, it looks like, yeah, you lose everything and then you find the things that give you that unconditional love. You accept where you are 
And I've been joking with people like every my mantra whenever people talk to me, I'm like death of ego. Um, that's what's happened to me. Um, this is not the first time I've had a death of ego, mind you, but this is another one that feels important and I have to like accept it and uh, fortify myself as best I can against any further <laughs> dramas. Um, but for now, yeah, um, it's it's just like grief, you know, it's I, I think of me prior to the, the crazy injury as another person, like literally I've grieved him in therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, and now it's just what what am I good at that maybe before wasn't being served? And how do I augment my life in those ways? So now I, you know, it's tough not getting to like wrestle my nephew the way I would if I was healthy. Um, But now, you know, I like invite him inside and like do puzzles with him. And I like try to make comps to stuff like that because it's ultimately it's like the people and interactions you're having, not what you're doing. So if you can like, you know, trick yourself into thinking this is like a, 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 a relative comp, then that's, <coughs> that's all right. So it's, it's, it's a lot of work though, to like, try to find ways in which you can substitute things you would have done in life. Like Isabel, you mentioned going rock climbing. I would love to, I don't know if I'll ever be able to do that again, but like, mm-hmm. I'll go yeah. get coffee with you. And I'll think of it as mm-hmm. hiking and we can even talk about hiking. I don't know, but, um, <laughs> and that's, that, that's another, another thing. I, um, I look forward to those opportunities because now I look at life that way. The social stuff I, I was, I fulfilled by going out and playing basketball with that sometimes 40 people who would rotate in and out. Right. I was getting that that way. And now, no, I was so lonely for two years. Um, and now all I want to do is talk to people. Um, and I'm like, and I'm heavier than I've ever been. And I am like more insecure than I've ever been. And I'm happy. I'm not gonna say happier than I've ever been, but like, I'm getting there. I'm figuring out how to maybe again, Isabel, like you said, when I'm in a nursing home, I'll be like King Tuna. I don't know. I'll I'll be, everyone can help me. That's cool. I won't resent any of these nurses, male, female, whatever. Come help me. Um, (laughs) So I'm ready for that. You know, speaking of that, like gender element of it, because like, I do think that the, the side of it that, you know, like caregiving work is considered, is coded to be so feminine. Right. And I'm curious where were your guy friends while you were going through this experience? Mm. And or did you have like close guy friends that you were there? Were, were there any to go to? Yeah. Um, so I wish. So I, I have a roommate and he was there for me. Um, he on and off. Um, and I love him to death. He's like a brother to me. Like he didn't he did not do anything. Um, it was more so on me. Uh, I pushed away everyone. Um, and it wasn't, I, because I couldn't go anywhere. Right. And I'm not going to like invite people to come see me in like repose, not repose in, in demise, you know, like it felt like a, it would have feel like a fucking funeral viewing. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. so I wish I could answer that question, but like, I feel like so much of it was on me. Um, Uh and so, so I don't have any like grand realizations about, about any of that stuff. Um, I will say, I want to give a little bit of shine. So there's this girl that we went to school with Isabella. Her name is Kimaya, if you know her. Um, so during the pandemic, she lost her mother and, uh, it was shortly after I started going through all my health stuff and she had this one post where she basically announced on social media that she was going to publicly grieve. She was going to try because she wasn't, she was stuck in a rut and she started doing so. And I think it's super brave and like in, like I can't even comprehend doing something like that, but that got me through like some of the worst times in my suffering because like, I don't care how much pain I was in. Nothing will come close to the day I lose my mother. And so by Kimaya doing this really brave 
unfathomable thing of like sharing all the stuff she was going through. It also helps that she is like a poet and the things she writes are just like heart wrenching. It was a lot like getting a hug or like someone could empathize with my pain, albeit not at all the same. Um, I was, I could empathize with her loneliness and that, that was also really life affirming and possibly life saving. Um, again, I think of that as like, for me, divine timing. Um, I was raised Catholic. I'm not religious. So when I say things like divine, I want to be clear that I'm not saying like God is doing this. Um, sure. But like karmically speaking, she, I don't even know if she knows this, um, was like holding my hand through the loneliest parts of my life just by being courageous enough to share her loneliness. Um, so I don't know if that's interesting or just pathetic. <laughs> i think that that's really like for people who do share that stuff it's a very vulnerable thing to do and i think that's really validating that that sharing is worth it yeah yeah right? i think yeah no i was just gonna say it seems like being able to do that in a public in a more public way you know grief and pain are, are so as you said aaron just like so alienating you know and like I feel like a good, you know, being able to do it in a, in a public way and like, you know, have to have people react to it and like parlay with that feels like it could be so liberating. Yeah, I, I have a whole new context for it because I, I won't I won't lie. Um, I've seen people do it in the past and I kind of was turned off by it and it felt like, I don't know, to me, it was like either self-indulgent or it was like you're you're doing this the wrong way or yada, yada whatever. But it was a combination of me being in the place that I was in with her being really forward about what she was doing. I think that was a big part of it. She, I wish I could, I might be able to find the post and like send it to you guys, but it was like, Hey, I'm going to do this. If this is not what you're about, cool. Lose me. But like, this is what I'm going to do. And so at that point I was like, yo, not only is this fascinating, but I also need to hear this. <laughs> um yeah. so I, I also do think some of that sharing is like, you know, context dependent, maybe. But then again, who am I to decide, right? Maybe if I was on social media constantly sharing that I was dying, I would have gotten some love from people who I otherwise uh didn't hear from, you know? And that's 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 yeah. the weird thing about pain and suffering is like if you don't share it, what how you you can't expect um you can't expect anything in return mm -hmm. has it felt sort of like cathartic for you to share the things that you have with like you know I, you know i know you weren't like doing the thing kamaya was doing but like was there any feeling of catharsis around that when you talked about it um so I haven't really, this is the first time I'm really talking about it, like in any sort of public way. Um, mm -hmm. I will say I, I am future oriented in being able to talk about it though. Um, like I know, yeah. uh, again, if I'm in any way involved in politics, forward facing or otherwise, there will be demographics that I can empathize with and will work with in a way that is more intimate than it ever could be. Um, I have a sister who's two years younger than me. And when she was 12, she was diagnosed with an insanely rare uh, musculoskeletal issue called amplified musculoskeletal pain syndrome. Um, it manifests a lot like phantom limb, but of course you're not missing anything. Uh, the brain kind of tricks your body into being in pain. Um, and, and the pain is real. It's measured at like four times childbirth. It's like crazy levels of pain. Um, mm -hmm. So much so that I remember when I was like, I guess like 14 or 15, I would watch my baby sister writhing in the ground, writhing on the ground in pain, screaming. And then 30 minutes later, she would have no memory and not know my name, not know my mother's name because her body was literally like trying to forget what had just happened. That's how excruciating it was. Um, mm -hmm. So in that sense, the catharsis kind of comes from being now able to empathize with her and like talk to her in a way that 
uh, like our relationship has gotten a lot better because while I would never uh, assume that what I have is anything close to what she had or has, excuse me. Um, she we're not lonely or we can be lonely together if that makes sense. Um, and that's a really beautiful thing because as an older brother, watching your sister go through something that is like, like scientifically inexplicable is just devastating. Um, so now to at least like stand beside her in that in some way, uh, is pretty beautiful. Well, Aaron, first of all, thanks so much. It's been, um, it's been wild and like, I don't know, very, very kind of like happy and honored that you decided to share your story on this, on this platform today. So thank you for that. Uh, thank you guys for offering a platform to do so. We, we need more folks like you. Um, what's something you're looking forward to? Anything that happening in your life that you're like, damn, that I'm, I'm, I want, I want to experience that soon. Uh, yeah, I'm going to go to a pumpkin patch and I'm going to get lost in a uh, corn maze and maybe bring a wheelchair and see if one of my nieces or nephews will push me out. That's the plan. Nice. Yeah. Nice. nice. Um, this is your time. Is there anything you want to plug? Anything Anything you want people to to look at, to 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 follow, to donate to, to care about, anything like that? Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I guess pals programs. I, I, this was not at all planned, but um, I didn't even anticipate this question. Pals programs is it's a nonprofit. Um, I described it earlier, but it works with young adults with Down syndrome. The idea is to give them a sense of independence, self-sufficiency that they otherwise might not have the opportunity to have. So we do week-long overnight camps for them. And uh, yeah, it's to build up social support and to just give them opportunities that otherwise wouldn't be uh, wouldn't be given to them. And it's a great organization. They they're need need blind financial aid. So anyone who needs it, they meet a hundred percent. So if you belong to the broke club, which is something I'm going to patent or copyright, uh, you can go, it's all on the organization. So don't think that there's anything preventing you from participating in what I would describe as a really life changing and life affirming, um, experience. Amazing. And we'll find some, some linkies and put them in the show notes. Cool. Um, as always, you can find us at I'm the villain pod. That's our Twitter. That's our Gmail. That's our Instagram. Uh, thanks again to Aaron. This has been a great episode and really, yeah, I'm really happy with how this turned out. Thanks. Um, guys. otherwise, bye. Bye. Wait, Deandre, 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 you have another thing to plug now. Oh yeah, you're right. You should plug your other show too. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, <laughs> so weird. Yeah. I'm not used to this. Uh, yeah having my own project okay well listen i'm um, if you like my stupid voice and you want to hear it in a different context um i'm starting a new show with my friends it's a new podcast that's called three discs three disc changer like the number three disc changer um the and essentially it's me and my two friends and each week we pick and listen to a new album and we talk about it together and um talk you know give a little context on like the environment in which the album came out and um give our takes on it and kind of just hang out and talk about music um it's um something that i'm really excited for this is kind of you know three dish changer is going to be more of a passion project it's just me talking about something that i'm really really uh passionate and care about a lot so we'll put um the the instagram in the show notes but it's at three dish changer our first episode um will almost certainly be out by the time that you hear this um our first episode is out uh tuesday october 18th so we're super excited to launch. Um, and our first episode is going to be on um, Chance the Rapper's Acid Rap. So give it a listen. All right. Bye.